we started this course by looking at various individuals from various backgrounds. Yes, yeah, so we looked at Smiths, we looked at Smith and Bradford, we've looked at you know, Freethorne, we looked at uh, Devaka, Champlain, we looked at Columbus. And what these people all have in common is the fact that they're all men. And they're all, uh, because they're all men, they all have an implicit amount of power. Yes, there are some different power dynamics between some of them. Smith didn't have quite as much power as uh, others around him. Uh, Columbus was struggling to obtain more power or to negotiate his power with the people both on board of, uh, of his ship, as well as you know people in Portugal and people in Spain. And we looked at all of that. Uh, but what we haven't looked at so far would be the other half of the entire human population that's ever existed at any particular time, and that would be women. Uh, we do keep studying men because men of, of the power structures that they had, they were the ones that oftentimes were writing things. Uh, women were marginalized. They were you know, pushed to the side and they were not allowed to write unless they were very, they happened to have very special circumstances. And we're going to look at some of those circumstances inside of this podcast. Uh, some of the things I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm going to talk about Bradstreet. I'm going to talk about why she goes about insulting herself. I hope that you can pick up from the, the text as well that her work was supposedly uh, published against her own will. I would maybe say that's a little bit debatable, but that, you know, that's for a different day and time. Uh, we're going to look at Rawlinson, whose faith drove her through a very difficult situation. Uh, and yet it also, again, sustained her, but it also shaped her worldview as well. So we're going to look at these two extraordinary women and the contributions that they can make to American literature. Let's jump in. Let me start with just a couple of quotes. I think this is the quote I feel personally most uh, comfortable reading, and that's because I'm reading it, obviously, in a man's voice. I doubt not, but the reader will quickly find more than I can say, and the worst effect of his reading will be unbelief, which will make him question whether it be a woman's work, and ask, is it possible? If any do, take this as an answer from him that dares avow it. It is the work of a woman, honored and esteemed where she lives for her gracious demeanor, her eminent parts, her pious conversation, her courteous disposition, her exact diligence in her place and discreet managing of her family occasions. And more than so, these poems are the fruit of but some few hours curtailed from her sleep and other refreshments. I dare add little lest I keep thee too long. Those are the words of a man who had to attest to the fact that these poems were written by a woman. She had to, in other words, Anne Bradstreet, in other words, had to have a man come forward and say, hey, as a man, I have witnessed that this was a woman that indeed wrote these works. And I can tell you from personal experience as a man that I have seen this woman write these works in her free time. So she actually took time away from sleep and other refreshments. In other words, she lost sleep and she may not have eaten in order to make these works. That's in contrast to other um, other obligations that she may have had, things like tending the home, being a helpmeet to her husband, raising children. So to put this in other terms, Anne Bradstreet did not neglect her duties as a wife. Instead, she neglected her duties as a human being in order to make uh, the passages that we we are reading here. Why is that important? Well, I, I think some of it's a little obvious, but I'm going to unpack it anyway. It is important because this is not the way that men are being treated. John Smith 
did not have to have somebody come forward and attest. Yes, there is a man that wrote this. Yes, he wrote this in his spare time. Nobody had to do anything like that for him, for Bradford, uh, for anyone else. But when we get to women and women writing, we have Anne Bradstreet, who again must have someone attest uh, to her her stance as a as a writer. That is, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. That's appalling, and it is indicative of the way in which women were treated during this time period. Now, I've stated that it's appalling, and I would say that it is indeed that case because of the way, again, in which women are being treated. Um, but let, let's examine that more because this is sometimes argued by certain individuals that um, it was just a function of the time period and we can't judge the past or the present. And I think that there's something to that because we shouldn't judge the past through the present. We have different standards and, and whatnot, but that doesn't mean that from a moral standpoint that uh, other human beings shouldn't be treated in a fair and equitable way. And I think that that is a, a timeless standard. And uh, that's something that I hope to continue through this course is looking at that timeless standard in conjunction to people who have been pushed to the side. And uh, so Bradstreet's a great place to be able to start that conversation because quite frankly, since she lived in Andover, um, she was in some, some ish, I'm going to use the word ish here, danger because Something like 40 years later, after her, the publication of her work, if we look at just the prologue, for example, the, the little thing near at the end says that you know, 1650 is approximately the first date of inception. So 1650, about 40 years after that, 1692, I think is the correct date, you had the witch trials um, sweeping through this particular area, even touching the location that she lived in. From that perspective, there is a mortal danger that comes with being um, too forthright as a woman, too um, strong-willed as a woman, for stepping outside of the faith or stepping outside of the, the bounds of gender roles or gender norms as they existed during this time. And so, yes, there is a bit of moral danger here. There is a bit of, you need to make sure that you're coloring inside the lines, so to speak, you know, Bradstreet, because if you're not, if you're stepping outside of those lines, um, then there's going to be a problem. And so that's why you have this attestation that this woman did all of her obligations as a wife and a mother, and she took time away from her basic human needs in order to be able to write this, which is, in their minds, and the logic of this time period, excusable. All right, with that in mind, let's jump into some analysis of her work and how this manifests inside of her work. Keep in mind when I'm doing this analysis that I am doing very much a historical analysis. Other people who analyze this poetry might do it in a more formalist approach. They might look at the symbols. They might look at the, the meter or something like that. They might note that it's in you know a sustained format, uh, A, B, A, B, C, C, and so forth and so on. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to skip through. I, I like and I prefer to do a historical analysis because I think that there's more that we can get out of that uh, if we tie it back to the society and culture of its time period. I've just given you an awful lot of history and let's ground the text inside of that historical moment because again, I think that that's most useful. When we look at Bradstreet's The Prologue, if we look at section number five, she says, I'm obnoxious to each carping tongue who says my hand a needle better fits. A poet's pen all scorn I should thus wrong for such despite they cast on female wits. If what I do prove well, it won't advance. They'll say it's stolen. 
or else it was by chance. I have students say, why is she insulting herself? She's insulting herself because, again, of all the things that we've talked about to this point, there is some mortal danger. There's, you know, the danger of if you step outside the bounds of the, the particular day and time that you could be harshly judged or, again, ostracized from your community or something of that nature. She's insulting herself as what I would call plausible deniability. You know, hey, Anne Bradstreet, you seem to be advocating for women's rights. Oh, no, I'm not. Look, uh, section number five right here, I, you know, I'm noting that I am obnoxious to each carping tongue who says my hand a needle better fits. So that, that plausible deniability, again, comes from the fact of, of her being able to say to other people, no, I'm not trying to step outside of you know, my station or step outside of my bounds. I'm well within them. Now let's look at how she does step outside those bounds because she actually does a really excellent job. And this is one of the things I admire most about her as a writer is her ability to step outside those bounds while very quietly in the background, again, keeping this plausible deniability. I'm going to look at two examples of her stepping outside of those bounds. And then I'm going to look at one third thing, and then I'll move on to Rawlinson. If we look at the poem, In Honor of That High and Mighty Princess, Queen Elizabeth of Happy Memory, this on the surface appears to be something of a, a, a poem of praise. She praises all the wonderful things that Queen Elizabeth has done, which are indeed quite wonderful, especially in a man's world. Um, she was supposed to have been you know, a boy. That's what King Henry VIII wanted. And you know, there's the whole background there. Everybody posthumously praised her. I mean, yeah, people praised her at the time. Um, she did a great number of things during her lifetime. But after she died, it's like there's this... Um, this holiness that sort of filtered over her reign. And so it became a kind of vogue to uh, to praise her. So Bradstreet's work fits in, in that way. It's right up there with Spencer's and you know other people that decided to praise Queen Elizabeth. But what's interesting is if you go a little further into the poem, um, if you're following along with the text that I have, page 192 to 193, approximately lines something like 75 through 80, and, and going forward, she starts to praise all of these other queens. Now, I'm just going to take one example of this. If we look at Queen Dido, for example, uh, Queen Dido was doing quite well, actually. She was in charge of her own town, Carthage, and then you have Aeneas show up, and uh, the gods begin to tamper with Dido at this point because Aeneas is there, and um, you know he's a certain kind of favorite, and so they have Dido essentially fall in love with him. And uh, she ends up helping him. She's, you know, sort of madly in love with him. And, and he's in love with her to a degree. And he hangs out for a while. And then the gods are like, hey, Aeneas, you need to keep going. We have bigger plans for you. So he gets on his boat and he, he leaves. This is, you know, very much truncating the story. And she becomes, becomes very, very upset. And uh, yeah, she's abandoned, as, as your footnote says. Uh, so she commits suicide. With that in mind... The, the underlying message here is, you know, women were doing quite well before this guy comes along and messes everything up. That's that's the underlying message. So she's doing this, again, very, very subtly. Yes, of course, she's, you know, on the surface. This is just a praise. You know, it's just praising like everybody else is doing. But underneath, there seems to be this argument that women are just as capable of anything as men are. And so women should be respected in the same way that men are. And uh, as you're reading through her text, as you're looking at the, her subject matter, consider this as one of those background things. Again, that sort of plausible deni deniability that takes place.
she tends to hide the subject matter inside of some common everyday occurrences. But she's also writing about those common everyday occurrences because that's what her life is like in this new location. She's a highly intelligent individual, and as a highly intelligent individual, basically stranded in this new society, this new location where she had to um, come to without any choice in the matter. Um, she's writing again about those things in her immediate area. But subtle argument in favor of women being in charge or women ha having positions of power or being equal to men. But she also writes about more taboo subjects. And I'm just going to call attention to this one because I, I think it's um, interesting and I think it goes against the norms of the time. And quite frankly, again, if you're looking at the textbook, we're not really going to see some of these subjects again until we reach basically the end, until we're on the cusp of going past the American Civil War. We look at a letter to her husband absent upon public employment. She says, um, my son is gone so far in its zodiac, talking about her husband as the son, whom whilst I uh, joyed, nor storms, nor frost I felt, his warmth such frigid cold did cause to melt. My chilled limbs now numbed lie forlorn. Return, return, sweet Saul from Capricorn. In this dead time, alas, what can I more than view those fruits which through thy heat I bore? If you do sort of the mental gymnastics on that, she's comparing him to the sun. His warmth, such frigid colds did cause to melt, and her, her limbs are now chilled. And then she's going to sit there and look at their, their fruits through which his heat she bore. The fruits being her children. How do we get children? Through sexual intercourse. So essentially, this is an expression of female sexual desire for her husband, which is, again, quite frankly, unheard of in a society. Um, but she very carefully coaches it in the background. And with all of the other sort of, again, denials and, and, and you know, seconds and, and things like that are, that are taking place here, it's very easy to miss which is why I like to draw attention to it. I think that by drawing attention to it, we can see how unconventional she is, how she's struggling against the norms of the time, how she um, does wish to express her basic human uh, desires and um, uh, just humanity for everyone to see. But she's doing it so subtly, uh, this sort of mental gymnastic stuff that's taking place, that it is easy to overlook or it's easy to see and say, well, I mean, maybe that's a stretch to see something like that. I don't think it's a stretch. I think for an, a very clever woman like Anne Bradstreet, um, we have to look for things like this because she's attempting to signal us within the social structures that she's trapped. The last thing I want to look at with Anne Bradstreet concerns her faith. Now, her faith must on the surface at least be that of the people that are around her. But if we look a little bit beyond the surface, we can see that she had perhaps some doubts as well. I'm going to point to two main locations and suggest a third here. The flesh and the spirit is a great location to look. If we look at the side wherein the flesh makes its particular arguments, they're not illogical. They do go against the doctrine of you know primacy of the spirit, uh, if I you know, can phrase it that way. But for example, for riches doth thou long full sore, behold enough of precious store, Earth have more silver, pearls, and gold than eyes can see or hands can hold. It doesn't necessarily sound like the flesh is trying to seduce the spirit or trying to take primacy over the spirit or anything like that. It's just essentially saying, hey, if you like these nice things, the earth has a lot of them in store, and you just have to go out and work for them. There's nothing illogical there. There's nothing that, that seems to want to corrupt the spirit, and yet the spirit still responds, Be still thou unregenerate part, disturb no more my settled heart, for I have vowed and so will do, thee as a foe still to pursue. 
again, the flesh is not insulting at all, but the spirit is very insulting. If I'm reading this and I am a member of the faith, I'm I'm sitting there and I'm looking at the spirit and I'm thinking, yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, you have to fight back against the flesh. But if you if you move past that and you look at again the the space and the arguments themselves, um, the flesh again is not wrong. It's not illogical or anything of that nature. And this seems to suggest at least sketch some kind of doubts. Now, if we compound that with a couple of other things, let's go over to the letter that she wrote to her children. Um, I think those those doubts are a little bit compounded further. Um, she says, for example, if we flip over in the edition that I'm following from on 208, that there is a God my reason would soon tell me by the wondrous works that I see, the vast frame of the heaven and the earth, the order of all things, night and day, summer and winter, spring and autumn, the daily provided for this great household upon the earth, the preserving and directing of all its proper ends. But how should I know he is such a God as I worship in Trinity, the, this person who made things, um, and such a Savior as I rely upon? In other words, I'm looking around at everything, and yes, this seems like a wonderful reality, but how do I know that the God of the Trinity made this instead of you know, Zeus or Allah or someone else? That is a, a fairly straightforward, legitimate question that people have wrestled with for really thousands of years. And in a social structure where people highly value faith, uh, for her to ask such questions could be considered dangerous. So if she did have doubts, again, being an incredibly clever woman who uh, you know, is very good at hiding things inside of her own text, I would, I would dare to say that she does have some doubts. I don't know, you know how far they carried her, but she at least had some doubts and uh, had critically analyzed the faith until which she was born. So those are the two places I want to point. If we look at you know the the passage about her house burning down as well, there seems to be a bit of despair there. Um, she seems to praise, but is it a praise that's given an irony, or is it a sincere praise? Again, just to draw attention to it, this is not to say that it is definitively the case, because quite frankly, when somebody talks like this, um, if if there is that plausible deniability, we don't know, and she's not here to ask. But as a reader and uh, as looking at, as looking at this from this historical location, I would suggest, or I would at least make the argument that she does seem to have these doubts, that she does seem to be expressing things like sexual desire in the background, that she does seem to be expressing arguments in favor in favor of women. And keep that in mind as you read it. the groundwork that I've set out so far for female writers during this time period also applies to Mary Rawlinson. She also needed someone to attest, a man to attest, that she was a woman and that she was writing at this time period and that she had the best of intentions and that she wasn't writing for necessarily gain or anything, but because she'd been pressed by her friends to do it. But a lot of the groundwork that I've set out also is vastly different for Mary Rawlinson. I've intentionally finished up Bradstreet just a second ago by looking at some of her religious doubts, or perhaps religious doubts, because I would say that Mary Rawlinson does not share those at all. Mary Rawlinson is very, very dedicated to her faith. In fact, I would say that she's so dedicated to her faith that she um, definitely believes that she's a member of the elect. In starting a conversation about Mary Rawlinson, we need to first understand what the elect would be in very broad terms. Now, I, I know that I might have some people that are listening who 
know of this language and, and would disagree with my definition, but I'm going to just try to do it in a very broad way. Essentially, the elect uh, solve a problem in theology. And that problem is that if God is everywhere and in all things at all time, how is free will possible? Because if God is in everywhere, uh, is everywhere, then he's part of me. And if he's part of me, then that means he's making all of my decisions for me. And that means I don't have free will. Now, on the other hand, if God's not everywhere at all time and all things, this means that God is not omnipresent and omniscient or uh, omnipotent, all of these omnis. So that means that God's power is somehow lacking. The way to solve this is to say that uh, the first category is indeed the case, but that God has let go of uh, people's free will. But the nuance is that God knows who will go to heaven. And those people are called the elect. And so Mary Rawlinson believes that she is of the elect. She's been chosen by God ahead of time to go to heaven. Um, God has left up to her to make the appropriate choices to be able to get to heaven, but that he's uh, confident that she will be able to get there. So she believes that she's of the elect. When interpreting Rawlinson, we have to start with the elect because it's the thing that shapes the, her interpretation of everything that ever happens to her. She sees her capture by the native uh, individuals as a trial given to her by God in order to awaken her spirit. If she were going to explain any of it to someone else, that's exactly where she would start. And she interprets the events inside of this as being a manifestation of God's will. In doing so, she sometimes misses the humanity of those around her. So, for example, the, the Native uh, Americans and the ways in which they behave and, and the ways in which their behavior affects her, uh, she misses them as people. The elect is, in short, I always joke, it's like Fight Club, because if you're a member of the elect, the first rule of the elect is you don't talk about being a member of the elect. And that is because if you talk about being a member of the elect, then you're not because now you're demonstrating pride in it. And somebody who is a member of the elect would not have pride because pride is something that goes against uh, uh, God's will, which is for his, his people to be humble. With that in mind, again, it, it so dramatically shapes everything that she does and talks about throughout the entire text that even when she's talking about her sister, even when she reflects upon what has happened to her sister, you can hear a bit of an echo of that in the background. And, and once it's called out and it's brought to your attention, you realize how harsh uh, how harshly it shapes everything in her world. So her sister is standing there, they're watching the Native Americans you know, run up on them while they're on their, their um, at their home. And uh, she says, and Lord, let me die with them. Her sister said this, which was no sooner said, but she was struck with the bullet and fell down dead over the threshold. I hope she's reaping the fruit of her good labors, being faithful to the service of God in her place. Now she says this, but again, if we're interpreting it through the lens of the elect, we know that sort of in the back of uh, Mary Rawlinson's mind, she's thinking to herself, uh, my sister invited God's wrath upon her and God took out his wrath upon her, which means that probably she's not of the elect. So I hope she's reaping that good reward, uh, even though Rawlinson probably thinks that reward is that she's not in heaven. You know, this is shaping every single part of her worldview. Let's look at some more examples. A short time later in the text, she talks about how her daughter has um, has passed on after being shot. So essentially what was happening is you know, Mary Rawlinson is carrying her daughter on, basic, uh, right at her side. A bullet comes, passes through the child, and then ends up in Mary's side, uh, Rawlinson's side. Um, this, uh, you know, it, it hurts Rawlinson to a great degree. She has to put a, pult a poultice on it. 
but her child has been pierced completely through. Probably the child's intestines have been pierced and it was a long agonizing death. So there's absolutely every reason to feel bad for her in these circumstances. But what she misses, because she, you know, she sees this as part of her trial and part of God testing her, what she misses in this episode is the fact that the native people themselves have tricked her into leaving the dead body of her child. They ask her to go somewhere else, and when she you know, goes to that location after time, she goes back, and she said that she saw the ground was newly digged, and there they told me they had buried her child. Again, she completely misses the humanity in this situation. The native people have realized that she's grieving, that uh, she's in no condition whatsoever to, to bury the child herself, that she won't leave the dead body, and that she's probably not going to part from the dead body on her own terms. And so what they've done is very gently tricked her into leaving the body, and then they've gone and buried it themselves while she was away. This is a, a kind of universal kindness that has taken place, but it seems to go right over her head because she doesn't note that. Right, they, she just completely uh, misses it and goes right back to, you know, engaging in a, a dialogue about her own problems. Now, if she had read, uh, written this during this time period, yes, I could see that perhaps she's overcome with grief during the time. But she, since she's writing it after the fact and reflecting back on it, um, again, she's had some opportunity to realize the the sort of positive trick. I don't know how to call it the positive trick that's been played on her, where they feel sorry for her and they're going to bury her uh, daughter for her. Uh, but she doesn't. She completely misses it. And that's a running theme throughout this entire thing. At one point, they go to carry her across the water, and she said it was a miracle of God that her foot was not wet. In other words, that she didn't have to get down into the cold water. Um, she completely misses the fact that the Native peoples are the ones carrying her across. This is you know, no, no exact miracle. This is them being kind to her and, and not requiring her to walk through uh, frigid water uh, at this time period. So Look for that as you read the text. You know, go through and look at the way in which she's, you know, begrudgingly um, not respecting those around her. She's she's not very willing to respect those around her, but she's begrudgingly telling all the kind things that they're doing without necessarily even meaning to. I want to draw attention to one other aspect of Mary Rawlinson's account, and that is her seeming inability to tell a lie. One popular example of this is in the passage on page 240, where she's sitting in a teepee and she has a child next to her, and the native peoples are giving out food to everyone uh, present. They give some to Mary Rawlinson herself, they give some to the child, and the child is having trouble eating it. So Mary Rawlinson, after a period of time, leans over and takes the food from the child. She says, I took it of the child, I took the food of the child and eat it myself, and savory it was to my taste. You might wonder why in the world she would share something so atrocious. She's essentially stolen candy from a baby and share that in her account. And it goes again back to her faith. If she were to admit this from this particular account, when she went to be judged by God, God would say, Mary Rawlinson, you did this really awful thing. You stole food from a baby. Why did you not tell the world about it? Because I knew about it, but you hid it from everyone else. You hid this awful thing that you did from everyone else. So she shared without reserve to everyone because she knows that God saw all of her actions. And if she were to omit any of those actions, it would be perhaps a lie of omission. So uh, what I said a little while ago, faith has guided everything Mary Rawlinson has done. She's a very different kind of person than um, Anne Bradstreet. Anne Bradstreet, again, has there's some suggestion of some doubt in her faith, whereas Mary Rawlinson is so rock solid in hers that she uh, shares even these 
I don't know how else to call it, atrocious things where she's stealing food from children. And that brings me to the final thing that I want to discuss as far as Mary Rawlinson goes. I've given you a couple of keys to be able to unlock her text, but one of the central things I want to, to come to here is that her faith is rock solid. It has supported her throughout this entire ordeal. You'll note that she received a Bible and she continues to cite passages from it throughout her entire ordeal um, as a part of recounting that ordeal as well. And it's her faith that sustains her. It's her faith that gives her a reason why these things happened. It's her faith that was challenged by God throughout this experience and it was thereby strengthened. It's her faith that is the reason given at the very beginning by the man uh, for this entire account to take place. I sometimes get students in my classroom who say, oh yeah, I remember reading this. We read this in, in Bible study. It is still powerful as an account in the present because of that, because of the the uh, rock solid faith again that she has throughout the entire piece. Oftentimes students say, well, the past is this different country, it's this different place, it's this different time, it doesn't speak to the present at all. But if you are a person of faith, this is an important literary work inside of that tradition that comes out of uh, this, this colonial American time period. And it does still so profoundly influence people inside of these sorts of communities that Mary Rawlinson is not um, past. Her, her account is still something that can inspire us in the present. And really, again, to go back to the central course theme that I've been discussing throughout all of this entire podcast, that is a quality of good literature. Literature doesn't have to be uh, for everyone at all times. It can be a literature of a certain community. And that is certainly the case, again, with Mary Rawlinson. We started this course by looking at various individuals from various backgrounds. Yes, yeah, so we looked at some myths. We looked at Smith and Bradford. We've looked at you know, Freethorn. We looked at uh, Devaka, Champlain. We've looked at Columbus. And what these people all have in common is the fact that they're all men. And they're all, uh, because they're all men, they all have an implicit amount of power. Yes, there are some different power dynamics between some of them. Smith didn't have quite as much power as uh, others around him. Uh, Columbus was struggling to obtain more power or to negotiate his power with the people both on board of, uh, of his ship as well as you know people in Portugal and people in Spain and we looked at all of that uh, but what we haven't looked at so far would be the other half of the entire human population that's ever existed at any particular time and that would be women. Uh, we do keep studying men because men of, of the power structures that they had they were the ones that oftentimes were writing things uh, women were marginalized. They were you know, pushed to the side and they were not allowed to write unless they were very, they happened to have very special circumstances. And we're going to look at some of those circumstances inside of this podcast. Uh, some of the things I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm going to talk about Bradstreet. I'm going to talk about why she goes about insulting herself. I hope that you can pick up from the, the text as well that her work was supposedly uh, published against her own will. I would maybe say that's a little bit debatable, but that, you know that's for a different day and time. Uh, we're going to look at Rawlinson, whose faith drove her through a very difficult situation, uh, and yet it also, again, sustained her, but it also shaped her worldview as well. So we're going to look at these two extraordinary women and the contributions that they can make to American literature. Let's jump in. <music> 